Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we discuss works of horror from a progressive lens. I'm your host, Jeremy Whitley. I write comics, books, podcasts, screenplays, etc. And on each episode, we talk about a piece of horror fiction and look for feminist themes, racial and social justice themes, LGBT rep, physical and mental disability, and the works of female POC and LGBT creators. We recognize horror as a genre never agreed to this podcast, my favorite thing about horror movies is being surprised, and there's nothing more surprising than a horror movie that has something important to say, in between the screams, of course. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the 2017 movie Mayhem, and joining me to do that is fellow comic writer Ben Kahn, whose work you might know from Heavenly Blues, Griffin, and the upcoming Renegade Rule. Also talking to us is comics and fine artist and my longtime co-conspirator and human-sized moth person, Emily Martin. And our guest tonight, horror lover and professional photographer extraordinaire, the amazing Allie Mullen. Allie, Emily, Ben, let's get this party started. Woo! Awesome. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, Allie, since you're the guest here, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, your, your history and, and love of horror? I uh, got into horror as a really young kid. My parents loved screening movies for me when I was far too young to actually really enjoy them. Um, but I looked to them for guidance as to how to react to these movies. And my dad was always laughing when we were watching Dawn of the Dead or Killer Clowns from Outer Space. And I yeah, took that as my yeah. cue to, to just enjoy it. Just go That's along the for the ride. response to horror. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Which is why I don't understand when my friends are afraid of horror movies, but <laughs> I try to be compassionate. As a photographer, do you think that it all affects the way you look at uh, movies or horror movies in particular? Yeah, a little bit. I feel like for the most part when I'm photographing, I do a lot of weddings and a lot of family portraits. I've actually photographed Jeremy several times. I photographed his wedding and Aww. his family. So not as horrific. Um, yeah, we have a lot of fun. <laughs> but sometimes I, I think it just forces me to look a little bit deeper at things and see the eeriness. There's a a fine line between things that are eerie and things that are ethereal. I also do a Halloween project in October called Allie's 31 Days of Halloween, where I do a horror-themed portrait every day for 31 days. So that's where I get most of my, my spoopiness out. That's so cool. October is a big month for art creation, and usually it's, it's um, drawings and, and ink and things like that, but I haven't seen a lot of photography stuff I'm just so I'm just so on board with the whole trend of just making all of October Halloween month. Oh yeah. If if folks can get the day after Thanksgiving to December twenty fifth for Christmas, I think we can get a whole month for Halloween. Oh yeah. Two months. Start September. I mean, it's in our hearts the whole year long, but I feel like it's more acceptable to just do four weeks. As soon as the first leaf falls, he's just out watching scary movies. <laughs> or if you're in California, the first fire. There you go. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's a big oof. You just never but, you stop know. watching horror movies. Dark, right? but also bright because uh, of the fire. Yeah, being in, in the uh, uh, Sonoma County. Um, oh, wine and fire. Wine and fire. We have two seasons, wine and fire. That really does sound like an AMC show. Wine <laughs> yes. Wine and fire. <laughs> um, that, that would be a great title for a show about the Napa Valley mob. <laughs> yeah. I would watch that show. Yeah. 
Okay, so let's uh, let's jump into our non-spoilering section here. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, what the movie is and and how it is, so people can know whether this might be something they want to go ahead and watch before we spoil it all for them, or if they uh, if there's something bad enough that they just want to shut this off now and not listen to it at all. The movie's called Mayhem. It was directed by Joe Lynch and written by Matthias Caruso. Uh, it stars in its two main roles, uh, Stephen Ewan, who you may know from The Walking Dead, played Glenn on The Walking Dead, and Samara Weaving, who uh, is also the, the best part of both Ready or Not and The Babysitter. Now, They're both so good in this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, if you had to cast a double lead movie with, with one male and one female lead, it, it would be hard to do better than that. Um, They're just, most of my notes are just counting off, Stephen Yeun is incredible, Samara Weaving is amazing. <laughs> and this that yeah. for like an hour. They're a delight to watch. They're they're really good. Now, what kind of trigger warnings do we want to give people going into this? What what things should they look out for if maybe they don't want to uh, run into these things? So much violence. (laughs) A lot of violence. A lot of gore. Shitty boss. Terrible working conditions. Corporate hierarchy. Uh, A very (laughs) aimless term about halfway through the movie. Mm -hmm. So you should just go into it knowing there's some uh, there's some there's some real ableism in the film. Yeah, there there is extreme violence. There is uh, gaslighting, both of the you know professional kind, but also of sort of the theme of this is um, gaslighting and pandemic things sort of work together. There is a pandemic in this movie, so that's our our special 2020 trigger warning. If you don't want to deal with uh, pandemic and disease and all of that, maybe maybe hold off on this one for a while. Chris points it out in most of the episodes. Uh, pandemic stuff really hits differently in 2020. Yeah. Oof. yeah, no zombies in this one, but you know, still still pandemic stuff. Now, uh, with with that stuff in mind, where would we rank this on our uh, range of how scary it actually is? Fright wise, is it spoopy? Is it spooky? Is it terrifying? Or just you know, existentially disconcerting? Cathartic. I would yeah. Say Cathartic and disconcerting to how how possible these things could be and definitely flinched a lot at some of the violence in this. I would say it is disconcerting, especially I think the 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 corporate realness is pretty disconcerting and the whole pandemic situation. Yeah, um, had, had this been two years ago, I would have said straight spoopy. Like there's no real jump scares in this. There's not a lot of horror movie tropey stuff you know that, that would normally be scary it's, it's certainly not the babadook but, no. but yeah as it concerns I, as it concerns pandemic stuff and disease pretty existentially disconcerting in you know the year of our I, 2020 i still go that this is very in the spoopy territory in that like i'm never afraid of the violence or worried about the characters like at all times am i like enthusiastically encouraging more of this like hyper violence like i'm in it i'm in the just the catharsis these characters are achieving for themselves i felt that way when i first saw it in 2017 like oh you know it's so fast-paced it's really fun to watch all of this happen and it felt like it could it didn't exist in reality but watching it again for the podcast every time they said quarantine i flinched and they mm-hmm. talked about you know shutting down a building and neutralizing a virus and i'm like can we have that can we have that <laughs> i thought it was funny because i was i was seeing the uh, uh hazmat suits that some of these background characters were wearing and um thinking well that that's not a lot of protection compared to the actual hazmat suits that we have <laughs> Uh, well, initially I described it as if Sam Raimi directed Fight Club, and I've changed my mind. If if Sam Raimi directed Office Space, 
Well, before we give too much more of that away, uh, we oh, yes. do want to go ahead and have just, just one quick question before we get into the spoilery section here. Do all of you guys think this is worth people watching? Yeah. I've recommended it to multiple people since I watched it last night. So. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's why I picked this movie. It is explicitly one of my life's missions to get people to watch this movie. Well, I can't say no after that, but my, my answer before that was yes. Yeah, okay. I, I do as well. This is this was one of the ones that I watched during October as my, my big binge of horror movies there. And it definitely ranked in sort of the, the upper quarter of that for sure. It's it's pretty high up there. All right. So that's the last of our non-spoilery talk. If you don't want this movie spoiled for you, if you don't want any plot details, if you want to go watch it yourself right now, now is the time to leave. We will uh, we'll still be here when you get back. I promise we're not going anywhere. Okay. We and waited anything? an hour and a half for you to watch the whole movie. Yeah, we, we sat here and waited. Yeah. We've, we've, we watched it again. We didn't talk mm-hmm. the whole time either. Just we wanted to save it all. Meditative silence. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, first impressions. Anything you guys want to say right off the top uh, that is a little spoilery? My spoilers for the movie is that it is the are you tired of being nice? Don't you kind of want to go ape shit meme? Um, I will mention that uh, we didn't talk about sexual content with the um, with the trigger warning. Um, there is some se- sexual content, although it's not necessarily violent. Usually, with with I think pretty much all of the sexual content in the movie is um, implicitly consensual. Um, yeah, and I I was out definitely a a very pleasant surprise because it definitely seemed like the premise of the movie would have it almost seems like in a lot of movies would have gone for that so i was very happy to see it just not even touch that yeah that's pretty obviously a directorial choice on uh, on joe lynch's part i am incredibly two thumbs up in support of yeah uh my my only uh initial reaction is to say that uh this is office space game of death he said it is a story about battling your way up the tower. Yeah, there is a game of death element. That's the, the name of the movie that I forgot as well. I will say that this movie has a lot to say, to say about late stage capitalism. And uh, that is fun. That was one of the big, mm-hmm. that was also one of the big reasons I wanted to do this movie uh, was because it's a rare movie that deals extremely explicitly with uh, class and capitalism. Initially, I thought I wouldn't like this movie because of the fast pace. Um, I kind of put it into the zombie category because it's about a virus and people changing their behaviors, but the pace actually works for the film and I appreciated that. Yeah, and I feel like it's less about people uh, becoming something that they can't control and more about people becoming more of the shitheads they really are. (laughs) Absolutely. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what works is that at no point does it feel like, oh, these characters have been changed by the virus. It just feels like it's an excuse to do what they ought, what they would have, would do anyway. Like it still feels like them. And even if they're not technically in control, the movie still kind of makes all the characters seem like they're still in control. Yeah, there's a nice balance of amplifying all of their id behaviors and staying true to who those people actually are. It feels very much also that like they're self-aware of what they're feeling. Like they're feeling heightened, exaggerated things, but they're aware that they're feeling heightened, exaggerated things, and they know why they're feeling these heightened, exaggerated things. Yeah, on that note, mm-hmm. I mean, let's jump right into the, the opening here and we can talk about exactly what this is that we're dealing with. Um, the, first, the first thing we get is a short little intro segment here to the ID7 virus, uh, which is the uh, antagonist of this movie. I don't know. Um, <laughs> we're told specifically that it breaks down your, all your barriers. Um, yeah, it does what they call emotional hijacking. 
you don't have any sort of um, control. You you do what it is you want to do and not uh, what you think you ought to do. The, the main symptom of this, they call it the red eye virus because uh, when, when people get it, they get you know bright red in their eyes. We're, we're also introduced to uh, Neville Reed, um, who is the uh, character in a, a court case that is cited throughout this movie, in which it is determined that nobody is, nobody is liable for anything that they do while they are under the influence of the ID7 virus. So we, we also get an intro to Derek, who is our, uh, one of our two protagonists. Um, Derek, played by Stephen Yuen, works for a, a law firm called Towers and Smythe. Uh, Derek came in as a, a young, charming, hopeful uh, lawyer who wanted to do good and has been worn down by the office over the years. We get a, a few quick shots of him in the elevator going from being uh, super excited to be there to being pissed off to be around to then being, uh, you know, happy to be lording it over everybody else. This is a, what do you guys think? Like, I really like that sequence, like just the, him going up to the office and just him changing like through the six years. Mm-hmm. Every time he's in the elevator, he's in a different outfit and yeah. different state of mental decay from having worked there. Yeah, I, I like that he mentioned that the law office is fueled by greed, duplicity, and moral decay, and they screen their employees for honesty, loyalty, integrity. I that think it's mostly, mostly the loyalty so they can manipulate these people into continuing to do their dirty work. I feel like I just saw so much, like, just that, you know, it's the character arc that he then needs to claw his way out of, but just in such quick senses, and mostly just through clothing and body language, I feel like I was following Derek already, like just a really effective bit of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, that's where I, I I clung to the Fight Club thing at first before I, I clung to the Office Space thing because of how kind of fun and catchy the, the character introduction was. And also starting with that motif of the painting, um, which comes up a lot, is super awesome. Yeah, we learned that Derek is uh, sort of a, a blossoming painter. He, he likes to paint. He's actually pretty good at it, but it's... Uh... You know, it's something he doesn't talk about because it's not something that the, the people at the office would approve of. It's also very much a sigh of him that he's, you know, doing, but also seems to be actively squashing down, like keep saying he doesn't have time for art classes. Very repressive, which is kind of funny to think about when his id comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we, we learn in this opening section that uh, Derek is responsible for the Neville Reed case. It's his, uh, it's his breakthrough. That's how he got promoted to where he is right now, is that he got Neville Reed off for murdering a guy uh, just because he, he had the ID7 virus. And it sort of set the precedent for what will then be sort of the, uh, the catalyst for the movie. You can do whatever you want with no legal repercussions when you have the ID7 virus. And this, uh, this first scene we get here is Derek comes up to the, the office and finds uh, one of his co-workers just yelling and being generally shitty to his secretary and uh, decides to, to intervene by uh, showing off this, this video he has saved on his phone of his uh, co-worker cheating with somebody in his office during the last Christmas party. Derek an asshole, is... but he's a likable asshole because he blackmails for feminism. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, he uses his shittiness for good. I don't know if chaotic neutral is, I'd say chaotic good um, in that case, but you know, it's it definitely, also it definitely feels also a bit like a writer's trick of being like, despite what we've just told you about what a bad person Derek's become, he's still better than the people around him and still someone you, the audience should be rooting for. 
Derek is aware of his badness and is uh, trying to be a decent person, if not a good person. I think this comes out in Derek quite a bit over the course of the, the movie, which is Derek is, is good at being a corporate shitbag and, you know, just generally stating what the rules are and, and what's supposed to happen. He's not very good at being face-to-face mean to people. Now, some of the like the phone calls and meetings he set up, and really just his speeches are just such great like corporate douchebag for the people. I don't know. <laughs> Stephen Yeun is just so goddamn charismatic in this role. Absolutely. And he's he's pragmatic. You know, he's sort of kind of a roguish character, but you know, he's he's been ground down quite a bit by the job. He still maintains an individual motivation in despite the corporate setting. Yeah, he's incredibly practical. Like you were saying, he was pragmatic. And I think it can go for good and for evil. Like he's practical and trying to make his way up this corporate ladder and also to physically make his way up the building as we find out later in the movie. Yeah. And this is also where we uh, we get the recurring issue of Derek's missing mug, which, man, I feel this very deeply. Uh, somebody who's like been through several favorite mugs. Um, my children somehow have like homing signal on breaking these things. And uh, yeah, Derek's, Derek's mug is missing and uh, it's driving him more than a little insane already. And it's not like t- turbo exaggerated, um, especially with everything else going on. Uh, the the mundane and the catastrophic consequences of office work both come into play here brilliantly because it just gives you a really nice sort of backdrop to all of the chaos that's about to ensue, showing just how stressed out these people are and how these mundane things can just turn a day into shit. This is an office that's ready to tear itself apart, virus or no virus. Derek gets a phone call that his uh, secretary tells him is uh, important business. It turns out to be his sister, Lucy, who he is trying to avoid talking to because he has no time to do anything with her or do anything but work, period. He ends up having to take this phone call anyway and uh, is, is less than happy about it and uh, is seems actually almost a little happy to uh, be pulled away to, to go to a meeting which uh, the meeting here is where we meet Melanie Cross, who is a, a person who first presents himself as a, as a lawyer for uh, somebody who's dealing with uh, foreclosure by a firm that the uh, law firm represents. And Eric figures out pretty quickly that uh, Melanie is, is actually the person that is dealing with the, the foreclosure on their own house. Like, it just opens on, like, this high-angle shot of her just laying out this bloom of cigarettes. I'm just like, fuck yeah, Samara Weaving. You can kick anybody's ass. <laughs> yeah, when Derek tells her to stop smoking, she just calls him a soup and keeps smoking. Yeah, her fucks are already gone. She has none to give um, already. And then, you know, extinguishing the cigarette in the, the corporate water glass. Character is such chaotic good, and I love it. Yeah, definitely chaotic good for her. Maybe more chaotic neutral for uh, for Derek. The whole play of, of trying to be your own lawyer and projecting this uh, strength that she doesn't necessarily feel is, is a good sort of gateway to to how her character is going to evolve over the course of this movie as well. Uh, she also gives us the uh, the line that will come back a few times, which is, uh, no one raindrop thinks it caused the flood. I love that line. The conversation that they have is actually really interesting. It is another one that's very interesting in, in you know the context of 2020 as we're dealing with just insane bureaucracy 
and looking at that interaction close up and seeing, you know, somebody who's doing their job where they're faced with a moral quandary and our, our old hat at trying to uh, do their job in the face of this quandary. You know, you can see Derek's indifference to this, you know, whether it is scripted or not for him, you know, that I think that that's a very uh, important scene in the movie, especially, you know, laying the groundwork for what is going to be falling apart later. We see the the line between Derek could possibly do something, but it's much more beneficial for him not to do something here. You know, he's he's just sort of using the excuse of it, it being his job to, you know, not help her. And that's that's going to be a, a thing that comes back to haunt <laughs> him personally. And this this conversation ends with uh, her trying to get him to to call the person who is in charge of his mortgage, and instead of calling her because he knows what the end result of that is going to be, and it's going to look bad on him, he just calls security and has her escorted out, which is is not great for for Derek. But then uh, even worse for Derek is we discover that the the company water container there that he has been drinking from and that she has also been drinking from is infected with the ID seven virus, and though he he doesn't realize it yet, he's he's already infected. Uh, and then the, we have the wonderful montage, and I say wonderful sarcastically because it's terrifying, uh, of of seeing how everybody is getting infected. And that is another very real 2020 <laughs> sequence. Where, oh, that, I did not like that <laughs> sequence. Not one. Yeah, where everybody's like touching door handles and... Wear a mask. And, uh, <laughs> My notes just say virus spreads because people are gross. This is about to come around on Derek because we uh, find out very quickly here. Derek is in trouble. He has a meeting coming up. He finds out that he has been uh, tagged as being taking care of this account that has issues with it. Um, We won't really find out what those issues are until much later. He is being set up to take a fall for a character that uh, will be introduced as the Siren. The Siren is uh, one of one of our antagonists in this movie. Uh, I love this movie, like giving the villains fucking names like their Metal Gear bosses. Yeah, they're right? sort of level bosses. And this woman is incredible too. Like, you know, this is a kind of, not to get too personal, but, you know, this is somebody who I would take the fall for. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she is an incredible figure. To, yeah, Carolyn Chikese, I think, is the actress's name. Like, the leads steal the show just because of how good they are and just how great their chemistry together is. But there is not a weak link in this cast. Mm-hmm. Like, they're all fantastic. Yeah. I think it's it's relevant both uh, to her character and to the plot that the siren is also just dropped in gorgeous. Jeremy, we see I will... her whispering in the uh, the boss's ear several times, and we see his painting of her with the sort of like forked tongue coming out. Jeremy, it does make me realize this is probably our first movie with no chip because there wasn't any character being like, I don't know about this virus. I think you're making it up, Derek. Yeah, there's there's full acceptance of it. Like the highest boss. If this says people have to keep working. If this podcast achieves nothing but like a cheat, but like turning that particular character trope into the like the sub name the chip, then this will just be a smashing success. Yeah. So so Derek goes to uh, confront the siren. Also finds his uh, missing coffee mug on her desk. She claims that her secretary just brought it there, and secretary just says she found it with the clean mugs. And Derek realizes he's being very obviously set up by her and tries to drag her up to go see the big boss in hopes of of turning him against her. It does not go well for him. <laughs> she definitely has his ear. And uh, this is also where we meet the boss, who who will be a big the, part of... The Tower of Towers Tower. 
Mm-hmm. So there are Towers and Smythe, and Tower is the one that, that is Derek's big boss, and then Smythe is the one that... It's, what if Super Nanny was evil and Cokie McGee? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like Michael Douglas and Margaret Thatcher. Michael Douglas in, in Wall Street for, and Margaret Thatcher own this building and this, this firm. Gecko and Thatcher Consulting. yeah is this where they have the uh talk about the the roman Colosseum? that's Uh, yeah that's after right now this is uh drawing time with jumping on a grenade with a little casual (laughs) workplace sexism thrown in for good measure yes uh i didn't want to miss that sexist uh bit there but that was the the drawing the presenting the problem by drawing on the picture was fantastic good scene of like Two two smart people having to be dumb to deal with this boss. The both the bosses in this are fantastic. I for some reason in between the two times I've seen it, I had turned. It's just something about the character of, of Irene Smythe that uh, I had turned her into Kate Mulgrew between the two watchings. Um, <laughs> she's not played by Kate Mulgrew, but she could be. She just has that that feel. Her voice isn't quite as flinty though. She's not quite, you know, hardened. Mm-hmm. It's a bit more British. Derek realizes that uh, he's coming out of this on the losing end, so he tracks down his one friend in the office. We go to see Ewan. He's the only decent person in here, which is why he's not long for this world. Um, <laughs> Ewan tries to advise Derek not to do things, uh, only to find out that Derek has literally done everything that he's trying to tell them not to do already. Derek has already irreparably screwed things up. Ewan, is, is it is made clear, is only able to remain this clear-headed and intelligent because he listens to a lot of uh, soothing music and sound and lights incense and uh, eats kale and shit like that. Ewan <laughs> is my number one character that definitely needs weed and would smoke weed but doesn't know how to get it. I'm sure he has some sort of, I mean, he has a surfboard. I'm sure he's he's gotten weed somehow. He's like Six Sigma New Age guy. He definitely, he, he was like, I'm power meditating. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get he in that quick 10 second meditation to reset me. He definitely started out as like, you know, classic Towers and Smythe driven go-getter, like cutthroat. And now it's like, he's been there for like 15 years and now all this meditation stuff is the only thing just keeping him from pure nerve, like psychotic breakdown. Yeah, after his yeah. third heart attack, he took on meditating, you know? Yeah, he just comes home frazzled every day and his wife's like, have you tried, have you tried smoothies? Just, <laughs> like, this maybe, is, maybe that'll help. Like just a green juice in the morning. They, they are throwing in every form of self-care at the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah. <laughs> He's definitely married to a Zoe Kravitz character somewhere. Just What's teaching him yoga and does not appear in this don't movie, make which... me think too hard about you and's family because oh yeah sad. same yeah <laughs> so in um, scene, don't they... make don't make me um spoilers don't make me imagine the tragic widow <laughs> yeah but and this this is the scene where they they establish he has another kid i think he has multiple kids but then he has a photo of a new one that derek refers to as you know the opener for derek's plea for help or advice so you know it already that sort of marks Ewan for tragedy <laughs> oh yeah he is yeah. the nice person with a family trying to think of any character that's like m- more marked to death and nobody's coming to mind they're literally not even finished talking about this when the siren rolls into the uh, 
office and uh, tells Derek he needs to go pack his bags. Derek is determined to take it to the nine, which is the board of directors of the office, which is where we get the, the scene Emily was referring to, where we see the boss handing this, this case out to the nine and giving them the options. They talk about Roman gladiators and the thumbs down is not a a real thing what, what was it emily it was the the thumb turned you know doing that uh decapitation motion so all of the uh, the nine during their vote would make this decapitation motion with the the sword stroke across the throat with the thumb turned towards the throat and that was their denial i don't know if that's how it usually works in board meetings i can't imagine that it doesn't it, it was uh it's also a wonderful motif for a movie that ultimately is about mayhem Final drop i mean when you think about the term cutthroat business pretty literal cutting the throat of uh derek's career in this These case nine are not characters though they are like a hive mind of very passive white people that just does whatever the most violent person in the room tells them to do. This particular conversation is barely finished before we're introduced to our next level boss who is being sent down uh, by the people upstairs. And this is Lester the Reaper McGill. This guy. God, what a great wrestling name. Yes. But also like this guy just came out of some sort of Victorian horror Climbed out of a painting. With his cane and like this severe stride of his as he walks through that office. Again, you know, another delightful performance just of how just soulless this guy is. And he's the he's the human resources guy. Which is incredible. (laughs) Human resources. They say he's in charge of like the firings, which makes it seem like this company is firing people so often that it's a full-time position for one person to just be doing it. Yeah. He's, he just comes in to, to fire Derek, I, and Derek's like, but what about this? It's it's this reason and that reason I shouldn't be fired. And he's like, it's sign the papers. That's what I'm here for. You're, ice in I'm here, you're already done. Veins, cold-blooded. <laughs> and he has all these great quips that he delivers with just the coldest, iciest, straight face. Like, uh, I suppose I will file that for N. For not my problem. I do feel like of all like the bosses in this movie, this could have been like the one guy who like he steps out of the office and he just becomes a different person entirely. I kind of want to see a movie about him, but um... like I feel like the other people, it's like oh, like uh, the siren and towers and so like you're terrible people like twenty four seven. I could see Lester this just being like this mask of absolute ice he puts on. And then he gets home and he's like super lovey-dovey with his husband and has like a cute dog. (laughs) (laughs) That's spot Um, on. Is the LGBT representation in this movie going to boil down to Reaper? (laughs) I think think so. Okay. (laughs) I I think that's all we get in this film. Spoilers for that one, but we'll get to that later. Yeah, he he makes it clear to Derek that uh, his only options are to sign this agreement that, you know, he's... He's taking uh, the blame for all of this stuff that's gone wrong with this account of the sirens um, and get the payoff that will keep him alive. Or he doesn't sign it and he gets fired anyway and he gets nothing. Derek refuses to sign it and the security comes and marches him down. 
but as soon as they're about to walk out the, the building, we get our intro to the real conflict of this, which is the, the quarantine team, uh, SWAT team rolls up and tapes off the building. No one in or out. The, they know the virus is uh, loose because of detectors that are in the air filtration system, which were a little creepy, but not not all that far off. And uh, Very quickly glossed over as mandatory and installed when at don't worry about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is our, intro- our introduction to our doctor scientist for this movie, SWAT team lead scientist, uh, who I don't even think has a name. She's just nope. the scientist. You're literally just doctor scientist. I was looking through the credits to see if she was somebody famous because I was thinking it was going to be some kind of like hot fuzz Kate Winslet situation <laughs> where, you know, she's, she's wrapped up in a gas mask. That would I be great. Know. You're watching the credits. It was like, really? Angelina Jolie? Uh, right? <laughs> Angelina <laughs> Jolie Dan, for, like, yeah. for like the doctor. Good for them. Yeah, and, and things very quickly break down inside of this office. Everybody's trying to get out. The quarantine team hasn't blocked in. Derek literally turns around and finds the guy that he uh, showed the, the video of him cheating earlier to who uh, decks him right away. Derek doesn't even get a chance I, to I do really there. feel for this doctor scientist lady just for having to deal with like towers and smythe like, yeah, oh, these yeah. are people who's upon being told like hey you're on a virus that's essentially like 10 times cocaine his first fucking response is like so adding more cocaine can't hurt right <laughs> he goes right. full at, later on in the movie he goes full-on cokey monster yeah <laughs> doing, real, doing a real scarface um what's interesting is watching Derek through this process like coming here to this point where it's pretty obvious that the virus is happening you know you wonder how much after he's had that water in the uh in the meeting with Melanie how much his insistence to deal with this and to like get up in the siren's face and everything like that is the virus or him just being like hardcore you know and and uh, that's a really good point i I actually didn't even think of that yeah because he like the way that he sort of shuts down melanie you know you see he's sort of this um i mean you you see his corporate peon side but then you also know that he's threatened his co-worker very cleverly to keep him from harassing you know another co-worker so like we're not sure but just seeing his his expressions and just like that visceral the relish on his face as he gets to just like beat the bejesus out of this dude he, he gets clocked by this guy one good time and uh, the virus really kicks in and he immediately stabs this dude and then beats the crap out of him what if bath salts were contagious <laughs> <laughs> that's the tagline <laughs> Yeah, Tower and, uh, Smythe and Crystal Meth. Ewan, Ewan shows up and tries to chill him out. And he's like, just, you know, come, come to my office. Just calm down. It'll be fun. We'll appeal to the nine. Everything's going to be okay. And Derek basically tells him, like, no, this is my chance. I can do whatever I want to. I can finally actually, like, get up there and see them. And they have to listen to me. He's immediately on just a power bender. Unfortunately for him, it's not going to last very long just right now. Because of the quarantine, they're supposed to be not doing any work, doing anything that is stressful at all. And uh, the boss is forbid it if, if anybody stops work they're they're gonna be in deep shit they're gonna- i love just the cold simple math of we need billable hours must never stop yeah but that is just such like consulting law firm realness it's also very similar to our current pandemic of people having to go to work when it's not safe sure is <laughs> oh. <laughs> yikes, 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 yikes. 
and and also reminding us that some insanely wealthy rich dude with uh, suspenders and golf clubs in his office is the one who is making this decision mm -hmm. not the scientists who are trying to actually help and they're doing a pretty good job at least compared to what our 2020 looks like <laughs> you know being able to contain the virus to a singular building I mean, that's impressive. That's yeah. a true. That's a yeah. damn fine, and, and eight, completely cleared eight hours. Like, that's a damn fine bit of pandemic fighting. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, yeah. you know, and we're talking about different waves of coronavirus, but they I mentioned mean, at the beginning of this movie, like ID7 originated in Iowa, a thousand outbreaks and half of them in the U.S. At this point, our federal relief program is just a gif of Ivan Drago from Rocky Four. <laughs> Speaking of Ivan Drago, Derek tries to go see the Nine, but uh, the, the guy controlling the elevator that tells him he's going to take him up there to the, uh, the Nine instead sends him to the basement where the bull is waiting for him. And the bull is the boss's uh, heavy. He's Colton the Bull Snyder. He's completely irredeemable. I mean, his existence lets you know that virus or no virus, Towers and Smythe is up to some very shady, violent stuff. He pulls him out of the elevator, beats him, sprays him with pepper spray, and yeah, then pulls out the brass knuckles all, all very quickly with no, no real need for provocation. I will say one moment of actual like scariness just because it's such a crazy threat is later on with his pepper spray when he tells Derek, I'm going to burn your eyes out. Mm -hmm. <sighs> yeah, that's another, that's another real one, especially considering the pepper spray uh, involvement in the news throughout the year. That, that whole scene where the, uh, the boss is talking to Derek on his own phone while the bull is beating him up. And the boss keeps asking the bull, like, okay, so is he crying? And then the bull just flatly says, no, sir, he's not crying. So that's when the pepper spray comes out. And so it basically, Towers is is running through this laundry list of things that he wants to happen to Derek. Like it's, you know, everyday business. So yeah, as you said, Ben, there's some going pretty deep. I mean, Towers is a psychotic, violent child that has never been told no in his life. Yeah, so I'm like, sure, it's a great <laughs> thing we don't have to worry about. <laughs> The president we've never sure it's a good thing you don't have to worry about that in real life as someone that immature and vindictive and petty and violent gaining major power but guys it's okay because there's somebody here to defend poor old derek from the bull oh, ewan oh. his one friend is here to stop the bull from beating him up and oh, that's i mean he saves him and that's the end of the movie everything's great from there oh yeah yeah, it was, it was well, remember. Uh, of course, actually, what actually happens is Ewan gets uh, lightly shoved out of the way and stumbles backwards and finds uh, himself falling against a, a loose timber with a nail sticking out of it, uh, which is driven into the back of his head. I really thought you were going to say Ewan lightly dies. <laughs> lightly dies. Uh, <laughs> Just no, kind of lightly die, though. He doesn't go... He doesn't go easy because even pulls himself off of that wall. Uh, nails still in his head, just to still try and help. Of course, what happens is you know he falls down in front of Derek with you know blood gushing from his mouth and dies. Mister Rogers always said, "Look for the helpers." He never said, "Look for the helpers have a nail in their skull." <laughs> I, I do want to know, this is the one thing Towers feels bad about in the whole movie, because that guy is going to be really hard to replace. Yeah, I loved it that he was so upset just because, like, oh, Ewan was really good at his job. It's also pretty heartless that the goons are laughing at this guy because he's got, he's like walking around with the board basically stuck in his back like he's, you know, some kind of crazy scarecrow. And these guys, as he's like, he says something like, I smell toast. And then these, these goons are, are chuckling about it. So, yeah. Um, well 
to me, what was interesting was like the bull seemed like freaked out about him dying. Like for all the violence that he does, he seemed to be like, oh shit, a dead body. The fuck do I do? Am I going to jail now? And then had to be reminded that like everything's legal. It's purge virus. Yeah, he does have a little bit of reservation uh, about that. It yeah. seems a little bit more professional. Like, oh man, this has gotten out of hand. Like, not like, guilt. Not guilt. Yeah. <laughs> more just a sense of it's like, oh, this is not part of my usual work day. It, my work day is pretty violent, but uh, this is a little dicey. Yeah, Towers didn't tell me to do it. Yeah, if you, you know, once they, once they die, there's no more torturing them. This is also where Derek gets knocked out. He shortly after that uh, wakes up in a room with his new best friend, Melanie, who I proceeds to attempt to beat his ass immediately. I, I do have to say, and just because it's like, if Ewan's already dead, in for a penny, in for a pound, is there any reason they don't kill Derek here? Well, I, I mean, they still need Derek to take the fall for the uh, Vandercorp right. mess. That makes right. sense. Again, and that's one thing I'm willing to just be like, again, there wouldn't be a movie if they just <laughs> killed him off right here. Yeah, um, I think Powers is controlling a lot of what the goons are doing, so they're... He's trying to draw this out as much as possible to, to convince them to sign that deal. That makes sense. But yeah, so so Derek and Melanie are, are in the basement now, and Melanie is beating the shit out of Derek. And Derek manages to, to convince her that they need to team up so that she can get her woman and Derek can get his guy, and they can you know come out of this on top. And he decides to do this by uh, putting together a Franken-phone from pieces of broken phones left down there in the basement and uh, uses it to call Vandercorp, the company which he is accused of having screwed up their account, and inform them of all the shit that's actually gone wrong with their account, which is enough to, to get Vandercorp to uh, drop Towers and Smythe, and that is enough to get Towers to send guys back to go ahead and kick his ass again. The whole key card structure is straight out of a Capcom game. And I'm here for it. Speaking of Metal Gear, I do want to mention that Derek is able to put together the Frankenphone while on, while, while infected. So we know that the, um, I mean, that the emotional hijacking is a thing, but it doesn't, it's not intelligence hijacking. Which is so much of the fun of this movie is seeing these rich entitled assholes thinking they're the cleverest ones in the room and then just seeing, uh, Derek and Samara Weaving just like outsmarting them at every turn. I also want to mention that Melanie here, when Derek wakes up, Melanie is very audibly listening to death metal. And this yeah, is that, a, this... a recurring thing for Melanie is her, her love of death metal. Um, yes. Anthrax in particular, I believe. Yes. Melanie is my new movie crush. <laughs> so now they've used the Frankenphone to call, to like out Towers and Smythe. And so now, um, yeah, Bull is on the generic back. security guys down to get him. The bull doesn't come importantly, um, because they are going to, uh, Derek is going to beat one of these guys to death. Then they're going to break into, uh, into maintenance and pull out a lot of tools to use as weapons. And this, this is in particular seems to really like this nail gun. This, this is, is a good fun. nail gun, Jeremy. Oh yeah. I mean, a lot of those tools are good. And this is a full-on Sam Raimi, like, montage with, like, the close-ups and everything. They're, like, putting on the, the tool belts and stuff. Oh, for sure. I mean, lots of, like, you got, a lot, you got your Chekhov circular saw in there. 
<laughs> get uh, Derek's signature wrench. Yeah. That's their signature weapon. like Derek's got the wrench and Melanie has the nail gun. Yeah, so they, they armor up. They, they get all their stuff together and they uh, devise a plan. They can't get directly to Towers and Smythe because they're on the top floor and they can't get directly to the Siren because they need a, a key card to get to her, but they can get to the Reaper and the Reaper has the key card to get to the Siren and the Siren has the key card to get to the boss. That's a Capcom. <laughs> yeah, this is where the game of death really starts. Yeah, so they, they have to work their way up. They can go after the Reaper. They uh, begin their their crusade. By the time they get to the office floor, it is already mayhem. People are killing and fucking all over the place. Lots of office dudes to take care of. And they, they corner the Reaper in his office, but the security stops them and they tase Melanie. And then Derek runs off and hides and, you know, works his way back trying to fight through them. He kills one of the security guys and Mel kicks Derek the nail gun and they, uh, they manage to corner the Reaper. This movie makes consistently great use of just like an office space and the layout for fight scenes. They're also really solid with the quick cut like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of um what i'm assuming are just practical special effects of like cutting to somebody just at the right right moment that uh you don't realize that they don't actually stop a cane with their nail gun that's just pulled up the cane with the the nail stuck in it because that's that's a great bit where she you know they shoot the the nail gun at the reaper and he stops it with his cane oh yeah the cane the sound design is also really strong because i noticed there's actually quite a number of times where they don't show the impact but the sound each blow makes is just so big and satisfying that everything feels like it has such weight and impact to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The background acting and chaos are also really nice too. You get to see what everyone else in the office is doing while this one particular plot is happening. There are folks having sex in the background and people making really angry phone calls and dumping waste paper baskets and setting things on fire. So you kind of get an idea. You're like, okay, if I could just follow one person through this building and see what they did during their quarantine, it'd be kind of fun. (laughs) I do do enjoy uh, Derek and Melanie uh, introducing Lester to their associates giving us the true powerhouse law firm of Yon Weaving and Nail Gun. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of strong special effects, the Reaper decides, oh yeah, he's going to to give them you know, his key card. He has no reason not to at this point. What's what's he going to do? Uh, so he slides it across the desk. And as soon as Derek reaches for it, he drives a pair of scissors through Derek's hand and the desk. Did we which... talk about the Reaper's insane bonsai scene? Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, this weird, like... Like mashup of him uh, deliberately trimming the bonsai and then like tearing it apart with his hands and eating it, which is a special kind of crazy to want to eat like bonsai pine because that stuff's scratchy. I just loved it for just showing that icy controlled demeanor and just everyone's losing their shit. You yeah. can tell everybody yeah. in this movie is having such a fantastic time too. I have no commentary. I just felt like it'd be crazy for us to do this podcast and not mention that time a dude ate a bonsai tree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that's important. Uh, he's not going home to any husbands tonight because Melanie, with with Derek stuck in the desk, uh, Melanie uh, tackles him and they uh, they they have a fight. Derek keys Melanie up to the the saw being there, and uh, she sticks a saw in this dude's guts. Oh yeah. Honestly, just the amount of blood sometimes is also very Sam Raimi. <laughs> and, and we all hear the Final Fantasy theme music as they uh, get the key card. <laughs> <laughs> they get a magic fire ring and they level up a couple times. <laughs> uh. 
Derek gets his limit break, um, <laughs> Omni Branch. We just go ahead and skip them going up the elevator, and we go instead to the boss, who is trying to convince the siren to cut up her key card to protect himself. She doesn't want to do it because, you know, it's, it's going to get her killed, but he keeps upping what he'll give her for it and offers to make her partner finally. She agrees and gives the card to her secretary, Meg, to hold on to just in case. And then w- once we cut back to uh, Derek and Melanie, we get the, the discussion of music. Um, I think before that, we also get a pretty epic half-baked reference. Off-screen, an office worker is yelling, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, you're cool. Oh, fuck yeah. You. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was wondering where that was from. I was like, That was that? half-baked. We, we, we do learn about uh, Derek's love for the Dave Matthews Band. That's <laughs> when she should have hit him with a nail gun. Right? I, I love this scene. Like, they... They're just so adorable. Like, I really could have just watched them banter. I feel like a lot of this, I mean, it seemed very ad-libbed. So, I mean, I don't know if that's just the talent of the actors or the talent of the writers or what. But, I mean, this was this was fantastic. Yeah, real quick, Ben, what's your, what's your top three bands? Nirvana, Rise Against, Glitch Mob. Allie? Oh, I'll do bands and artists. Uh, Prince, Prince, and Prince. <laughs> <laughs> Very really good. on my mind today. What about well, the artist formerly known as Prince? I went back no. and forth. That'll be my number four. I didn't realize that the that the argument he was having with his record company was if he wanted to do like six albums a year. I, Jeremy, I top three bands. Yeah, Jeremy. Uh, yeah. Um, That's a hard hard question to answer. Very difficult. I mean, No Monet is definitely in the top three there somewhere. My top three change so constantly depending on, on what I'm listening to, which depends on what I'm working on. So I would just say at the moment, um, it is uh, Janelle Monet, the Mountain Goats, and the Decemberists. It uh, could not be more uh, twee and indie than to put both Mountain Goats and Decemberists on there. But it's just... Somebody call Adam Brody. I mean... Oh, yeah, right. This is just this is just the, the year where I listen to uh, this year, like, a few times a week just to, to get through it. Yeah. I'm going to make it through this minute if it kills me. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely... <laughs> I've definitely driven down the road uh, yelling that song more than a few times this year. So. Yeah, I feel like it, no, that song normally gets me the last like week and a half of a year, but probably sometime in March we all started playing that song. I would like to amend my list and add Kate Bush and Fiona Apple. Oh, I do love Very Fiona good. Apple. Great choices. I got yeah, I got really hooked on Kate Bush this year. I've I. I discovered the new Fiona Apple album a few months ago, and it's been sort of on steady rotation. So, did we get a top three for you there, Emily? Nine Inch Nails, Skinny Puppy, Aphex Twin. I'm sorry, Dave Matthews Band, you said? Uh, <laughs> First one's <laughs> Dave. Second <laughs> one's Matthews. You're going to edit it out? You're going to edit it in there? <laughs> Dave Matthews Band. I'm pretty sure I heard Dave. <laughs> Dave Matthews Band. Emily, can I just get you for no related, no related reason just to say Dave Matthews Band really clearly for me one time? Did, did, okay. did anybody take down what uh, what Melanie's choices were here? I, she said early anthrax. Um, uh, I think Motorhead, Motorhead was in there, wasn't it? Motorhead, yeah, yes. Motorhead, early anthrax, and I forget the middle one. We do learn that he does does love some Dave Matthews band. He does want to take her to a concert after this is all over. So do you think that his his admitting that he loves Dave Matthews band is the virus or just him being hardcore? Well, the virus just amplifies whatever you are. Yeah. So just being hardcore via the virus. 
Yeah. So, I mean, we, okay, we know he's hardcore, but like, do you think he would have admitted that he loves Dave Matthews Band if he didn't have some sort of social lubricant? I guess it does help that technically their first date is during an eight hour period where they can't hide any part of their real personalities. <laughs> so uh, we, we do learn that they are uh, guarding the elevator uh, so that the siren can't get out. They are just waiting for her to come to them. Meanwhile, the the boss puts a, a price on Derek's head and six the accounting team on him. They finally decide what the fuck, they're going to go take care of this. They do have a ticking clock in which, you know, time they have to take care of all this stuff. So... They're going to go have a showdown with the siren. There is a nice little uh, showdown bit here where we get them, you know, meeting across a a group of cubicles. The siren sort of with uh, all of the accounting team decked out in their full-on Mad Max gear. Yeah, Yeah, they they have gone full Mad Max in less than four hours. That was so beautiful. The makeup was really nice. Turns out when their ids were exposed, they got really into arts and crafts. I feel mm-hmm. like accountants are very close to, to going over the edge most of the time anyway. So I wanna I wanna think that they were just like so tight knit that they decided to like do this together like as a as a team. They finished the orgy and then they were like, let's be a marauding gang of murderers now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or team it's a team building exercise. Yeah, they so really the orgy. Uh, Oh my god. <laughs> I mean, the phone the conversation Derek has oh my god. with Mark the C D C guy. <laughs> the hostage negotiating amazing. call here. Oh <laughs> shit. Yeah, so I feel a- great, Mark. <laughs> Yeah, the CDC like therapist who is trying to talk down these people on speakerphone while they're like having a straight up Mad Max showdown as Mark or not Mark, uh, Derek has Melanie hook up the phone and play Faith No More um, <laughs> to be the soundtrack to this like epic battle between like eight accounting people. And Derek, Derek does read a, a series of disclaimers before this, though. <laughs> the, and yeah. This whole oh, scene yes. is amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just like a, anybody who stays here acknowledges and understands that, you know, their their bodily autonomy is, is forfeit or something to that extent. Yeah, just yeah. Reading, the, reading the fine print. <laughs> this scene was such like the purest distillation of the movie. I almost wonder if, like, they wrote this first and then built the rest of the movie around it. Like, not that I actually think that was the writing process, but just the scene is fucking awesome. Yeah, with, like, a tiny, like, a title card of exposition that could have been a standalone short office Like, this, like, like, a walkthrough with a scene was, like, their proof of concept. It was this scene. This is where, this is where they got the investment money from. This scene right here. And so, yes, they they cue the faith no more, and then they have an all-out battle in which uh, Derek and Melanie they they take a couple of good blows here, but they tear through the accounting team. We get we get both of them really really effing people. Which again, up. if they're anything like the accounts payable team in my company, yeah, that makes sense. They'll fucking fold like tissue paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, they they come face to face with the siren, um, and they uh, they want the key card to to get upstairs. Um, and she she decides uh, finally that she's going to give it to them because uh, there's no way she's getting out of this alive otherwise. Um, and uh, she calls Megan to hand off the key card and uh, Meg has made a different decision. Yeah, this, this crumpled up, um, nuked key card 
uh, clatters across the siren's desk. And, you know, it has been established that there is a certain amount of power play going on with, I mean, power play makes it sound like sort of I mean, the siren has been abusing her assistant all movie. Yes, uh, that's a better way of putting it. She is, she's been real shit to her. Uh, she's called her an idiot and much worse, I think, in, in the first half of the movie. Meg has finally had enough. She not only betrays her, but then uh, things, things take an even uh, darker turn for the siren. Samara Weaving is just sitting on a couch and laughing. <laughs> and a laugh so amazing, I want her cast as the next Joker. Derek and uh, Melanie just watch as Meg tears the siren apart. Question they mark? don't even have to do anything to kill the siren. That just happens for totally unrelated reasons, all on its own. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is her, her comeuppance, which I felt, I kind of felt better because I did love the siren. Like, as a character, there are some goals there that are uh, distilled into the uh, silhouette of that character. But um, Very fair. But seeing her secretary, like, go after her felt a little like that, that sense of horror movie comeuppance. Like, it almost worked better that the protagonist didn't do anything for this one. Because yeah. again, the siren is definitely the most like fun to watch of the bosses. I'm not sure if likable is the right word, but certainly the most entertaining. The decisions, the writing decisions here had a symmetry that I appreciated. Yeah, I, I do have to say the siren does do something really horrible and inexcusable and breaks Derek's favorite mug. Some petty shit. Yeah, unfortunately, the siren bites it and their their chance to to get her key card is lost. They are stranded on the siren's floor. We find out that Derek liked this mug so much because his sister got it for him and he never sees his sister anymore. Derek also agrees to help Melanie with her loan. <laughs> and then Towers gets in touch just to, to let Derek know uh, now that he can't get to him. He wants him to know just how much he's thinking about him by uh, making him watch him piss on Ewan's dead body. Which is a lot worse, I think, than breaking his mug. Yeah, just a little. <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> And we see another facet of this great performance, Stephen Wynn, when he's like distraught and he has this very like heartfelt scene. I was a little bit moved in the midst of this irreverent, violent comedy, you know, how he's like, oh, yes, kids. And of course, when when Ewan was was killed in the earlier act, I was like, oh, man. And then in this case, I was like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, for as briefly as he's in this film, like we develop quite a bit of empathy for him in the few scenes that he's in. Oh yeah, and he's I literally mean, he's the only decent person other than our protagonists. I mean, even when everything, even when everyone else is going crazy, his response is still just like, "Let's find a quiet place, stay calm, and just wait it out without hurting anyone." Yeah, <laughs> he's the real, he's the Bruce Banner of this movie. <laughs> you don't, you don't understand, Derek. I'm always freaking the fuck out. Yeah, <laughs> I don't even like kale. <laughs> This is the point where Derek and Melanie have their own power meditation. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just have Derek and Melanie sex in this box. Um, yeah, I saw the, the I, notes. <laughs> Derek and Melanie sex. I mostly wrote about the sweet-ass 80s beat that played during the sex scene. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's Zombie uh, that does a lot of that kind of 80s new retro wave music. I mean, honestly, it's like... Yeah, this makes sense why this would be happening. You both yeah. have great chemistry. And the scene after that, the little, the, the bit after that where she's like, what's next? And he's like, oh, with apartment and a dog. Just shows how pure he is really like deep <laughs> down. Yeah, their post-coital discussion over Dave Matthews' man. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Ants Marching was playing. I know that because of the credits, not because I know about Dave sure, Matthews. Sure, sure. Dave Matthews band. Dave Matthews <laughs> man. Fear me up, no. <laughs> 
Bot Trump. Sorry. It's not even the right lyrics, I don't think. Uh, right there, Bot. Okay. <laughs> Derek is, 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 a, is a nice, sweet boy. But he finally... He does come up with a solution to this, and that is that, uh, as we all know, corporate executives, they have lots of money, but they are very bad at computers, and the computers have a lot of control over their money. So he decides to go uh, hit up his boy Ray in IT, who we we find just destroying keyboards and freaking out, which... um, relatable and he decides to talk ray into hacking his way into smythe's hard drive so that they can download and then delete everything from smythe's hard drive so that they can get her to then have to come down and give them the card so that he can get up to the nine and to tower there's some obligatory it banter i don't think the movie would have gotten away without it ray is basically uploading a virus or something to smythe's computer and then he's said something like oh you know if i name that file super evil death virus she still would have downloaded it if i told her to click on it <laughs> and it does say something about her that she is still willing to listen to him even though he's being awful <laughs> cathartically well, also, awful. this happens and then she asks him like well let me well what do i do and then he just does, keeps doing things without question yeah yeah so it's like I- he breaks her computer and then she and then her immediate thought is like well i need to keep doing everything he tells me to i think there was a missed opportunity in this scene for ray to not have the virus and just behave that way i think it was a missed opportunity for the virus to be a laughing skull because i grew up in the 90s and that's how i know something's really a computer virus (laughs) (laughs) either that or dennis nedry pops up on it yeah uh 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 <laughs> yeah, no, I, th- I agree, Ali. I think that it would have just been great if he was there was some sort of Easter egg there where you're like, wait a minute. Yeah, like they don't show his they don't show his eyes until he looks up when he they mention Smythe and he's like, I hate that bitch. And his eyes are fine. And he's like, wait a second, you don't? He's like, no, I just hate her. Let's do this. And it would yeah. be entirely believable for the IT guy to got got off without you know it contacting anybody in person this entire yeah. day he's in the basement nobody knows i do <laughs> love that he's the one person who just needs to be told what happened to the reaper he's like yeah no i'm fine helping you no questions asked whatever the hell you want let's do it yep <laughs> smythe agrees to meet them and, and chooses a, a location to meet them somewhere she has cleverly taped a gun to the bottom of the table only to find out that they have come ahead and moved the gun because they're not idiots. And she chose, she asked to meet at this one place. They have outsmarted her outsmarting. Derek mentions the employee IQs are inversely proportional to their salary. I enjoyed that. That was very good. I, I clapped when I heard that. Yeah, and what they don't realize is that the bull is there to back her up. The bull pulls, pulls Derek out and beats the living shit out of him. Um, this is maybe the most painful uh, thing that happens in the movie. Not what happens to the bull, but how Derek manages it. Yeah. Bull pins him down and tries to pepper spray him in the eyes. Derek avoids it by opening his mouth and taking the pepper spray in his mouth and then spitting it back in the bull's eyes. I like spicy food, but uh, not that spicy. Yeah. yeah, I don't think that's a thing that can happen. So don't try this at home, kids. What happens? You think, oh, that's clever. And then, like, he takes off down the hall to uh, wash his mouth out. And it's like, oh, yeah, there is a terrible side effect at this. Yeah. And, well, and then also, I think pepper spray and, like, tear gas both are <laughs> aggravated by water because it just spreads it. But, you it know, this milk is... or peanut butter. Peanut butter yeah. is great for spicy foods. Mm-hmm. I don't think they it... have milk. Um, yeah, why jugs. does this company not have a peanut butter fountain? <laughs> 
because they're not on the executive level. You have to go up one more level. That's I had to get to eight for that one. Yeah, yeah. This, this scene also took place in like the company daycare. So the bull is fighting him around. Like he takes the gun out and he shoots all the stuffed animals. And then he puts the gun away and pulls out his brass knuckles. And then later the pepper spray. To take yeah, care Derek. Bullets are for did cowards. Enjoy that. Uh-huh. I did enjoy that little bit of character uh i did enjoy that little bit of characterization for the bull yeah that he's he's not about shooting yeah like it's not much but i do but i did like that like you know that kind of like klingon-esque blood knight type of thing (laughs) i take pride in my work (laughs) (laughs) i'm really happy nobody had daycare nobody had their kids at daycare that day though i'm just (laughs) when they when they introduced daycare i was like no movie please please no please and then Mm -hmm. it didn't and then i was like thank you movie ewan is the only person in that company that has kids and i'm sure his yoga (laughs) teacher wife was like no they are not setting foot in that building we we have lost another level boss in the bowl uh derek puts a screwdriver into his chest and that doesn't do the trick so he pulls it out and puts it in his head sorry I just remembered the the joy I felt when like they had one of those classic movie like he he tries to stab him and then the bull like takes his hand and, and is like pu- pushing him back and then he just uses his other hand to grab the screwdriver. You know what doesn't happen in every scene but this one. He gets the bull by the horns. <laughs> <laughs> he gives the bull a horn. The bull gets screwed. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, uh, Smythe and Melanie are fighting. Derek comes to to back them up. Smythe makes it clear that the uh, the key card she's brought is useless, and he's going to need a code to get up to the executive level. And the only way that he's going to get that is if he uh, turns on Melanie. And it's the only way he's going to get his job back or get back at Tower. And uh, so, so Derek decides to turn on Melanie. You know, ties her to a chair and leaves her there for uh, Smythe to take care of. Uh, getting in one last kiss before he goes, just I feel like it was a pretty obvious like something's happening here bit, and it, we we discover as uh, Derek walks to the elevator and Smythe punches the code in. As he starts to go up, we uh, see that he has a screw that he has taken out of the chair when he when he kissed Melanie. He uh, dropped some of the you know screw pieces into her mouth so that she would know what was going on, and uh, Melody has quickly cleared the chair obstacle and is there to murder the shit out of uh, Smythe at this point. Um, One thing I definitely picked up more on the rewatch, knowing that this reveal was coming, was how far out of their way they went to have uh, Derek only make like grunts and basic sounds in this scene mm. and not actually say any words. Yeah, he's got screws in his mouth. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. We're finally to the final face-off. We've got all the nine here and we've got Derek facing off against the boss who uh, is here to congratulate him for making it all this way. He's, uh, he, he really thinks Derek has really shown what he's made of and uh, wants, to, wants to offer Derek all sorts of stuff and have uh, these you know, two secretary girls that are with him offer him all sorts of things. Like which, anal stimulus. I'm know. pretty sure that, I've, I don't know if that was actually like a, fl- like if that line was, in, is she supposed to say anal or annual? But um, I know what I wanted to hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's a very like Matrix architect, <laughs> like yeah. slow clap. Everybody has champagne. Yeah, Derek remembers Melanie's foreclosure and that this isn't going to fix that. And that it, he feels like he needs to do something about all of this. And so he he turns down the offer, at which point the uh, two girls attempt to kill him and uh, wind up mostly killing each other. Um, um, and he decides to uh, 
have a straight out sword fight with the boss, which is, is really fantastic. I mean, yes. is that how your performance review usually goes? If I mean, I would probably be more happier to work in offices if that was the litmus test for uh, advancement. I mean, I would rather not have a ranch versus a uh, golf club, maybe something more like that cane, but... I mean, I work for a fa- I work for a family business, so I'm down to get Shakespearean with this shit. Yeah, no, there was this epic duel. <laughs> they, they Wrench versus golf club, <laughs> winner take the firm. Yeah, through golf clubs and uh, plate glass Ancient and cocaine, rival. and <laughs> he ends up just dirty. like surprise pocket cocaine in your yeah, face. Yeah, like <laughs> smears his face with cocaine like like Nicolas Cage, and then like that was the big cokey monster. That's what I wrote in yeah. my notes. Cokey monster. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like war paint cocaine almost, and then just and then, uh, then- uses it. To, to blind his opponent. <laughs> to blind, to the, you know, like there's snorting cocaine and there's blinding cocaine. It's important <laughs> to know the difference. The cocaine ninja. <laughs> <laughs> DC, let me and Jeremy revive Snowflame. Where is that? Where is the black label Snowflame book? <laughs> I mean, at the very least, can do something with Doc Ock's cocaine rocket? Oh my God, yes. Oh, I do want to go back a bit to just Stephen Yeun's incredible freak out on the elevator. Oh yeah, he's punching himself like Edward Norton. Like he's straight up like just, but yeah. he's hyping himself up. Fucking what a mood. That's the, yeah. the <laughs> adrenaline boost to, to beat just the like, final boss. Just what a crazy ass psychotic just freak out. And I just like, I think Stephen Yeun just sells the crap out of this scene. Just does an amazing job. The ending of this movie, these last couple of scenes are really fantastic. I, I love, you know, he gets the boss up against the edge of the stairwell here and turns to the nine to uh, get the well, we signal. We get mug of... knuckles. We get the Chekhov's mug returns in the form of mug knuckles. Yeah, he has a, his mug is now like a brass knuckle and it, it's so, <laughs> it's poetic. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. So he gets him over the center stairwell. The nine all give the uh, thumbs turned to you know, go ahead and finish the job. The boss is is sure that he won't be able to do it. But he it, should just... As if Derek hasn't killed so many people already just to get here. Yeah, he, he drops him right down that center stairwell. He peeped in so many skulls with a wrench. <laughs> I loved it. The nine are just kind of there. Like they, they put their champers down, but they, uh, they kind of are just like, oh, oh dear, what am I say? <laughs> just like the whole, during the whole fight. Let <laughs> um, me go back us. into the boardroom after the fight. Whoever walks back in, we'll take the vote. There was um, also a line where Derek mentions, you know, this the to uh, Towers that you know Towers is doomed because the nine know that if Towers is uh, eliminated, then that means a bigger cut for them, which is uh, making the subtext text. How the fuck is this consulting firm going to just continue on? I mean, like, whoa, that was crazy. Uh, anyway, everyone, see you tomorrow, guys. Like busy day of work ahead of us. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Clean, up, clean up the blood and get back to work. It's Woo. almost like it's a metaphor for some, for like how you know that kind of corporate uh, ascension works. Like I gotta say, if I'm in marketing after this, and I'm like, well, guess I still have to organize the company picnic. <laughs> <laughs> they install a new HR person, and they're like, okay, time to send out that webinar on self care. So Where's I know we have a bit of a morale problem. <laughs> 
Derek is in a position to take care of that because he gets offered the boss's job, which he takes just long enough to kill Melanie's mortgage before then quitting and deciding that he's now going to go live his best life. The uh, quarantine gets lifted and he and uh, Melanie walk out of there. We rejoin them in uh, in painting class where uh, they are, you know, actually actually doing something enjoyable now. And uh, Derek is, has given up this corporate life to... Uh, in hindsight, it. though, this is just Derek painting all of his victims, which is totally not a serial killer thing to do. <laughs> He's in an art therapy class. Maybe he's paying respects. He doesn't, it's not like he he paints them, well, the way he painted uh, the siren. Okay, yeah, I get, now I'm getting you. But no, it's like, it does work well as all of this, especially if you see those bosses as less as actual, like, human beings and more as metaphorical obstacles in the way of Derek kind of regaining his humanity he he and melanie give each other a very loving middle finger to you know across the the, the studio such a cute couple very millennial so um, <laughs> express their love through middle fingers yeah and that's that's a wrap on this so i, I guess we'll, we'll jump into our uh, our question segment here and see how we feel like it handled our, our various uh progressive issues boy it's a nice thing to uh look at this section on uh people of color and race and see more than one person on this list yes mm-hmm. yeah, i mean it's just uh, like uh our main protagonist yeah because digging for the 20th person down before we find uh you know one one black character who has one line uh, has been has been a theme with the last couple movies i feel like a little depressing so it's nice to see uh number one on the call sheet so we we have both uh Derek cho played by steven yun and uh kara the siren powell played by caroline chikizzi how how do we feel like this movie handles you know dealing with people of color or racial issues in general i think that there's a there's a certainly a progressive angle in terms of putting these uh you know non-white people in positions of power and also having Derek show be our protagonist i've been sort of on the sidelines for many a discussion about how a lot of the time asian american men in in american film and media are not really protagonists because there's so much asian media that's out there but there's sort of a, a void when it comes to asian americans and also Derek does not fall into any like obvious uh, asian american stereotypes either and honestly neither does kara for black women she is she's powerful i mean I, i'm sure there's some certain things that can be that can be suggested argued about her as a character but fact she's she is a powerful woman and a uh, an authority figure before race comes into it i think you know a lot of my friends who are asian american men have mentioned that usually you have these slightly feminized or nerdy tropes that that um asian american uh men that that they have um that they just so easily fall into in american media um and i found this was very refreshing and he was such a good character all around like it also didn't really matter to his character the the race wasn't a big part of the discussion but i think that it was progressive in the fact that he was not white yeah i I think derek could have easily been uh you know cast cast as any race they wanted but very much felt like you know, Stephen Yeun was I, really I can't living imagine. that part. I know, I know there's so many people that could have played this role, but I also can't imagine anyone but Stephen Yeun in this role. He embodies like, really well. It's so completely. I felt like this movie was overall um, felt 
a little like race blind to a degree. And again, when that in- means you get like, you know, not just like villains like uh, the Siren, but also your main protagonist, there's a lot to be said for that. But the one element that it felt like the movie kind of set up, but then didn't comment on was this, uh, how it had people, how this company is really set up where you have people of color who are able to rise to kind of middle management roles where they're then comp- set against each other and have to sabotage each other at the whims of this all-white board of directors at the highest level. Yeah, it was um, like they were su- they like these characters were subtly tokenized in the context of corporate hierarchy. They can work their way up to a certain point and then they hit that ceiling. It felt like if we'd spent more time with the siren, we would have seen that because that seemed to be a big motivation for her character. Yeah, they made allusions to her doing sexual favors for people, and she said that no, I don't have to do that. And, you know, she's waiting for that perfect offer from the boss. You know, he yeah, offered her like, a couple different things. And then when he said partnership, she paused and she said, yes, I'll take it. Yeah, to, so to me, it seems like that's what she's been working for. And that's what she's been denied, no matter how much office wrangling she does. That ticket to, like, the top top to be the, re- the real decision maker has still been something that seems to have been, like, systematically denied to her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I appreciate that the siren, while... You know, definitely a, a villain in the story is projected as being resourceful in a way that Towers and Smythe are not. They're rich, but fairly dumb. Um, you know, they pay everybody else to do their, their stuff for them. But, you know, she is she's willing to, to play the game. I think it says a lot that the Siren's the one villain that they kind of don't defeat. Like, she's defeated by, like, she's kind of hoisted by her own petard for something separate, but she is still able to kind of, she's kind of able to play at Derek and Melanie's kind of mental level in a way that Smythe and Towers aren't. I, I did appreciate that, that, I mean, I feel like she was less of a, of a villain some as much as a rival character. I mean, yes, she was a, an antagonist to Derek, but she wasn't other than her being manipulative. She was not as shitty to Derek as she was to Meg. There was there, the implication that like, she's not particularly great at the lawyering part of the job and has like sabotaged other people and gotten them fired to cover for herself before like that Derek isn't the first person she's framed for corporate badness. You know, I'm also biased because I I love her. Yeah. Oh, she's great. She's so, I mean, she is, she is so much fun. Like she is one of the, like she's without a doubt one of the best characters in this movie. That that leads us to the, the question where we have a big empty spot, which is the, uh, LGBT representation in this film, you know, short of uh, the Reaper and his theoretical off-screen husband, we we got anything? I mean, I guess I this is usually Chris's job to find representation that isn't there in the background yeah. somewhere. I mean, Lester is certainly queer-coded, if not explicitly queer. That's it. There's nothing overtly homophobic. I do appreciate that Derek cries for his bro. Yeah, I don't want to say. That a man being sad is inherently LGBT, though. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's very good. That's a very good point. But <laughs> it is it yeah, is healthy masculinity. It is, it is yeah, it's, yeah, for for a what is an action horror movie, there is not a real element of, of unhealthy masculinity or macho ness to uh, to this. And in fact, uh, I think Derek, despite being the the protagonist and really really laying waste to some people in this movie is not a not a macho guy by any stretch he openly admits that he likes dave matthews band so you know obviously he doesn't have to he he doesn't need to uh compensate 
for anything there. And you know, him yeah. him being he's as resourceful and strong. Yes. Um, he's resourceful, he's strong, and his relationship to Ewan, it also speaks to the distinct lack of, of homophobia there. I, I do wish that there was a little bit more going on in the background. If, you know, if our inhibitions are, are affected the, the way that the, the, red, the red eye virus is supposed to, you know, I would have liked to see some, not just heterosexual, you know, intimate interactions in the background. It would have been nice to there see. Was, there was so many of those, like, people having sex in the backgrounds. It really wouldn't have been too hard for them to have some same-sex couples like interspersed through there yeah all yeah. Of the romantic and sexual relationships in this movie were are completely heteronormative there's not really inclusivity i just feel like there's not any homophobia in it though so i will say derek and melanie are definitely a cut above the usual straight romance do you ship them and anna and nick are this are you are you shipping a straight couple again was that i don't think i was i thought i was pretty uh if we're talking Anna and the Apocalypse, uh, yes, I still wanted more of uh, Anna and uh, God. What was the other character's name? Uh, the girl, the other girl who survived. Steph. Yeah, I wanted more Anna and Steph content, and then <laughs> yeah, I wasn't so much feeling them as a couple. Just more once Ben Winter became awesome, and I'm like, okay, I see what I see what you saw in him. I, I get where you're coming from, <laughs> Anna. I feel like Ben was distinctly distinctly came out as pro power thruple on the yeah thruple. Okay, yeah, that's that's I. That feels like the stake I would have made. Yeah, that sounds right. Okay. I mean, I'm pretty sure we all know that uh, Evie and Rick O'Connor are like bisexual power couple energy. Oh, yeah. It's, I, I feel like that was firmly established in that episode. Yes. <laughs> I guess this is, I don't know, a slightly more complicated question in this one, uh, which is uh, how do we feel this movie did as far as feminism? Was this movie feminist? <laughs> I like the Reaper saying that He's all about gender equality as he then steps on or stabs Melanie. That really yes. is kind of a, yeah. the one kind of like explicit reference to gender in the movie. There was the bit earlier with Derek and the siren, you know, where, De- where Derek was oh, yeah, a little rather oh, sexist. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot. I almost forgot about that. A little casual workplace sexism. But yeah, Jeremy, this is a, this is indeed a very complicated question because you have there are there's quite a bit of uh, there are quite a bit of women uh, represented here. Yeah, which is is nice in and of itself in a way because we do have a problem often with these where like either there is one or two women uh, less in Cabin in the Woods and they they break down pretty squarely into two types or they're you know, are an interchangeable group of, of women in horror movies. And this definitely had like a variety of, of female characters spread throughout it that have different roles and different positions, both within the, the law firm and within the movie, you know, and that we have not just the siren, but we also have Smythe, who is, is, is very like decidedly I, a sinister villain. I think it really helps the movie in that there's, so many women characters performing so many different roles within the movie that is that it really is able to escape that sense of that there is a woman character who therefore stands in for the entire gender because there's so many prominent women characters it doesn't feel like they're allowed to just be their care be characters rather than be the woman character yeah for sure melanie bothers me on occasion because i do feel like had that not been Samara weaving, I might not have liked that part so much because I do feel 
in the mid to late movie, she's very much written as not like other girls. You know, she's she's the cool girl. She Samara Weaving definitely pulls it off. And I think had it been a lesser actress, that could have really felt clunky. Um, yeah. I like how it's almost subverted to, especially around musical taste, when she mm-hmm. talks about liking metal. And then immediately Derek's like, I love Dave Matthews Band. <laughs> Like there's not a they're not trying to one up each other they're just like talking about what they love yeah but I could see it being being taken that way I also like like she's wearing heels for the first part of the movie and then when she sees the sirens very practical shoes under the desk she takes them um so it felt like this like lateral move like she saw someone who was like her I feel like went ahead and took those shoes and and moved up I feel like wild badass girl with Shot with dorky yet charming guy is just such, it's just like a fanfic dynamic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that does, that does border on tropey, but um, they're both so crazy that, and, and they do such, they both do such a good job of being genuine that I think that it's, it's, this is building on a skeleton of tropes, but um, it, it does go further with it, I think. I guess and, you could consider them trauma bonded too, just from this experience and the way they've been treated by this company. Yeah, and and the sex that they that they have, you know, it's it's inevitable because of all of the uh, the sex going on with the the virus, and you know that's just a big part of it. And you know, it's a horror movie with a male and female lead. You know, I do want to say though that the the sex we've talked about, you know, in Jennifer's body, I think in particular there being sort of a a lack of male gaze in that movie, and I think that same thing is true of the sex scene here where it doesn't go out of its way to ogle Samara Weaving and sort of put her at the middle of this, and which it very easily could have, not particularly exploitative, this sex scene. And it definitely felt like a sex scene meant more to forward the characters than to just be something to titillate the audience. Like it definitely felt like, oh, this is a new step in them connecting on an emotional level. And it's not really explicit whether they are actually uh, an item so to speak, by the end of the movie, or whether they're just like buddies, which I think is is a step ahead of what would normally, you know, we would expect the 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 male lead and the female lead to be uh, uh, for that to be sort of like the icing on the cake at the end of the movie as part of the victory. Overall, I think that she 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 doesn't quite get that like <laughs> the dangerous manic manic pixie dream girl <laughs> that. I don't know if there's another trope ahead of Manic Manic Pixie Dream Girl, which is like Nightmare Girl, Manic Pixie Nightmare Girl, which is that extension of the Not Like Other Girls character that uh, Jeremy's discussing. Um, She feels more genuine than that. Yeah, I I think by having enough characters and having them be sort of rounded, it feels um, sufficient. It it doesn't go out of its way um, in, in a recognizable way that we do in you know, a couple of the movies we've talked about, but like, it's, it's definitely, I think, thoughtful in the way that it treats, um, at least to the, the main cast of female characters. And this is a little complicated by the actual physical illness in the movie, but uh, how do we, do we feel like it does any sort of handling of mental illness as a whole? Not mental illness. Yeah. No, I think they they frame the virus around amping up people's emotional responses, but they don't address any kind of mental illness specifically. It, yeah. it deals with 
I mean, through Lester, we have a bit of like physical handicap, but it's not something the movie handles particularly gracefully. Yeah, it it feels the cane feels almost more like a prop than a than something that is meant to handle the question of of disability in any meaningful way. Is what it is. the The one question that we I feel like we often don't have much to say about, but this really this movie really does have some interesting things to say about is class. How do we feel it dealt with class? Buck capitalism. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it is about class and it's, it's about uh, social status and humanity and how they, they, how, you know, that, that relationship and what it is and what it isn't. I mean, it is the whole, Derek's whole character arc is undoing the rot that capitalism has done to his soul. Yeah, I like the class solidarity he shows with Melanie. Um, and also that it's not across the board, like everyone who is beneath the nine is going up the elevator to fight them. It's them, and then they get pitted against the siren who, for all intents and purposes, is within their class, but doesn't want to, to partner up with them. It's, so we get a lot of different class dynamics that way. I mean, just that inherent way of, you know, the, uh, the upper crust setting people against each other, creating mm-hmm. division. Hell, the way, even towards the end, where it's like, hey, Derek, you're here. You've almost affected change. What if we just bribed you instead? Like, yeah, I mean, also, like, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the very straightforward metaphor of climbing the social ladder in the game of death, you know, just stripping away the, or making, making the, uh, the metaphor a real life or death situation, you know, um, I think that that's pretty on point. You know, that's a it's a very uh, effective and clear critique of uh, capitalism and corporate hierarchy. And in terms of the violence, it was also interesting to see a lot of the more affluent characters didn't carry weapons with them. Like Smythe went down to that office um, to the conference room knowing there was a gun under the table, but she didn't come armed. And so she felt she could walk through all of these people going apeshit without any kind of weapon to defend herself. Towers has his goons to take care of a lot of physical violence before Derek makes his way up to the very top. And then he uses golf clubs because white capitalist man. (laughs) I feel like Smythe specifically, whether it's when it's the hacking, it's the gun, it's the chair. She specifically is a character who's so arrogant and yet almost every time she appears she's tricked and outsmarted mm-hmm. it's like okay. how did she fall into that that job <laughs> like how did she fall upwards into like mm-hmm. as far as she got? possibly just because of her last name yeah the inheritance probably yeah um, and i mean this is this is also in this movie the the nine including you know Smythe and tower are literally set apart from everybody else above everybody else in a place where they are literally untouchable you know until they are tricked from within drinking champagne and snorting coke (laughs) yeah well everybody below them dies (laughs) yeah so i i do also appreciate that both Smythe and towers were undone by relying on other people because they couldn't do certain things themselves so that is to say that they you know the fact that they were so arrogant that they did not uh that they were so used to relying on other people without respecting those people 
that that's that's what undid them ultimately because with um with Smythe that was you know the assumption that she would be safe with the gun but you know and that her employees would not be smart enough you know the assumption that she still that the, the IT guy still has her best interest in mind mm-hmm. um and then with uh with Towers you know th- at the very last minute he's asking for someone to give him the proper golf club and he starts quibbling about oh, no no oh, no that not was- that one that's then, such a hilarious scene, like the murder, <laughs> like he needs a murder caddy. Yeah, and he's so reliant on that murder caddy that he um, loses valuable time against Derek, who has done all of this himself and who is ultimately is working to help somebody that he is, uh, he would have otherwise just screwed over. I mean, what does uh, it say about their weapons of choice, like a golf club, a tool? entirely for recreation versus a tool a wrench a tool uh for building things oh yeah that's Mm -hmm. a good one yeah i like the contrast between all of the affluent characters relying on people in inequitable relationships for their protection um compared to derek and melanie's relationship which is on rocky foundation because of their jobs or um, their situation within this firm but that you know he he reaches for her hand and that and very early in the movie and he's like i need to do i have to do this with you because he knows he can't do it alone even if he can't fully trust her there's a scene i love i think it's around the time when they're fighting uh the reaper where she says i don't need your help and he says i know but i need yours yeah yes it's a very nice moment especially you know it it fits very well in, in what we've been talking about with the you know uh gender dynamics and and everything in the film um, and I like that it didn't go tropey and, you know, we need each other and we're going to beat this and everything's going to be good. Yeah. It's like, no, we're, we're murdering people in a building trying to scramble out of this in some way. Uh, well, that's, that's all our questions here. I guess the, the final question is, uh, overall, what did you guys think of it? Would you recommend it to people? Absolutely. I, I love this movie. Yes, I, I like that it's horror adjacent, so I could recommend it to friends who could handle gore, but not necessarily anything very scary too i was yeah, texting people in the midst of watching it telling them to watch it <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's so a lot of fun yeah yeah do you want some catharsis about capitalism watch mayhem yeah <laughs> you ever wish you could throw your boss down the stairs <laughs> don't get any ideas <laughs> it reminds me of the simpsons like kill my boss do i dare live out the american dream <laughs> <laughs> It's really good. I, I would definitely recommend it. You know, I do think, uh, you know, like you said, it, it is horror, horror to Jace. There is, uh, you know, definitely plenty of, of violence and blood and gore uh, in here. And there's, there's some psychological terror to be had, but nothing in the way of, uh, very little in the way of anything jumping out at you and going boo or haunting your dreams in the middle of the night, other than, you know, capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not going <laughs> to pretend I haven't had a, a dream where uh, I'm in public and I don't have my mask, but, you know, there we are. That's now, a uh, multi-layered symbol, too. Yeah. Now, the, uh, I guess the next question is, since, since we did enjoy this, since we uh, recommend it to people, what else do we have to recommend for people who have seen this movie that uh, they, will, they will probably enjoy as well? So, I'm going to, for my recommendation... I'm going to move a little bit away from like the cathartic action, which is honestly such a big part of what I love about it, but focus a little more on intense psychological uh, films with a heavy, heavy focus on class. And mm-hmm. I'm going to recommend Parasite. Oh, yeah. 
definitely worth checking out if you if you really enjoyed this one. Um, yeah, another one. Uh, yeah, another movie. If you're if you're in the mood for some more fuck capitalism. Yeah. Uh, Who isn't these days? Oh, right? right. It's a bad system that's working badly. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> it's working the way it was designed. Yeah, yes. it's, work- it's either working badly or it's working perfectly. That's one yes. that I'm going to be thinking about like a Magic Eye poster. <laughs> <laughs> this movie oh, made no. me really, really grateful that I'm self-employed. Uh, Emily, what you got? Well, um, I mentioned it before, and it's not exactly horror, but it is very similar to this in terms of um, catharsis and fuck capitalism. Um, there are a lot of strange uh, parallels of this movie with uh, Aggressive Retzko, or Agretzko, as you say, on Netflix. Um, the Sanrio series about the Red Panda who loves heavy metal. The uh, siren reminded me a lot of the women in that uh, Gorichan. The, and- uh, the, se- the secretary bird who was the secretary. Yes, uh, her and um, the the marketing executive uh, Gorichan. They, yeah. they it felt like they took those two characters and put them together to create the siren, which that's is almost such a, like oh my god, yes. I I, di- I didn't think of that, that, but that's perfect. Yeah, I mean that's what I that's what that. I saw when, I, and that's probably one of the reasons that I loved her so much because I was sort of projecting that. But um, yeah, it is a very good and very very feminist critique of. Uh, just class and capitalism office corporate dynamic and uh you know not a, not a lot of blood and guts um a lot more wholesome um than this movie um or even office space or any you know other fuck capitalism kind of movies nothing nothing actually scary until you get to season three yeah but yeah there are there are pretty real takes um in a gretzko so you know if you saw this movie oh yeah no just Season three, the plot line in season three is just a spe- gets with the stalker. Spoilers. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I'm sorry, I suck. That's all good. But yeah, the, the, um, if you're watching a fuck capitalism movie and you want to watch something to kind of still fuck capitalism, but maybe cleanse the palate of all the, the blood, I would, I would definitely recommend a Gretzko. And that actually has a chip, which is interesting. But we'll get to that later in life. <laughs> later in life. All right. Uh, Allie, do you have anything that you would uh, recommend to folks who like this? Yeah, I've got three recommendations. They go in a couple different directions. Um, so if folks who can watch this because it's horror adjacent and are ready to dip their toes into something a little more horror focused, but still comedy focused, um, Evil Dead 2, since this is Sam Raimi directs Office Space. Mm-hmm. Um, if you like the fast pace and you want to get into something that's more zombie-based, Train to Busan, which is a Korean zombie movie. And if you want to do more capitalism stuff, but still in that horror comedy context, uh, John Carpenter's They Live. Oh, man. I love They Live. Uh, I hadn't even thought about... Rowdy Rowdy those... Piper. Yeah. <laughs> definitely a lot of those same, those, like, same kind of anti-capitalist themes. Oh, that's a good one. Ronnie Ronnie Piper and Keith David beating the crap out of each other in an alley. That is the best way too long fight scene. Keith yeah. David? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. Have you never seen mm-hmm. They Live, Emily? I I if I have it was on HBO in like nineteen ninety eight or something. <laughs> um, so it's been a, a hot minute. <laughs> yeah. It came out in eighty eight and I feel like it didn't get as much syndicated play as the thing. And yeah. Halloween, so yeah, give it a look, give it a look. 
putting that on my list. Um, I've, I had a really hard time with this one. I don't know. Uh, I feel like everything that immediately came to mind that I would have recommended is, is better known. Like, you know, Office Space, Fight Club, things like that that are, that are obvious comparisons. I, I think what ended up settling for me is, is it's a very different movie, but it feels similar in sort of the manic pacing and the class stuff and is definitely uh, a palate cleanser in a way and is probably also, again, more famous, but I wanted to talk about it, is uh, Raising Arizona. Mm. Ah. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah. Yeah, if you're... I mean, you can't, you can't miss watching a movie with Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter. Like, I love Holly Hunter, and she's, she's really good in this. Nicolas Cage is really great in this, and it has a lot of subversions of, of stuff about class. And, you know, it is a Coen Brothers movie, so it, it has a certain weird pace and quirkiness, um, much like this movie. And uh, I, I think it's something that, you know, folks can enjoy that's maybe not, not quite so soaked in blood. and. Uh, not not even really horror adjacent, but uh, you know, is is a class thing. All right, now that's that's going to wrap it up for us here. Uh, why don't we go ahead and let people know where they can find us online? Allie, you want to start? Yeah, I am Allie Mullen, A L L I E M U L L I N, on Instagram and Twitter, and my website is alliemullen.com. She takes very pretty pictures. I do. Thank you, uh, Emily. What do you got? Um, I am Mega Moth on Twitter and Mega underscore Moth on uh, Instagram because I apparently missed that boat uh, for that name on Instagram. I'm also Mega Moth. Uh, and again, it's M-E-G-A-M-O-T-H, like a big moth, like a human-sized moth person. On Patreon and uh, Megamoth.net, it's .com. On the internet, feel free to, to hit me up, follow, patronize, etc. Um, I do art. Awesome. And uh, Ben, where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at @benthecon, or at my website, benconcomics.com. Uh, my next uh, graphic novel is uh, Renegade Rule with Dark Horse Comics. A uh, queer uh, esports action comedy is available now for pre-order at uh, penguinrandomhouse.com and also on Amazon. Fantastic. And uh, I am on both Twitter and Instagram, but mostly Twitter at jrome58, is J-R-O-M-E-5-8. Uh, my website is uh, jeremywhitley.com. As far as the podcast goes, uh, you can find this and every other episode at uh, progressivelyhorrified.transistor.com. Uh, you can patronize us on Patreon at patreon.com slash progressivelyhorrified. You can find us on Twitter at Prog Horror Pod. It's P R O G H O R R O R P O D, uh, where we'll post updates about everything that's coming up. Uh, we have several episodes uh, already planned out that I, I know you guys will enjoy. And please, if you're if you're listening to this and you enjoy it, or you know, honestly, even if you don't, uh, post some great reviews for us. Let people know uh, how much you're enjoying it and uh, where they can find us. That's going to do it for us tonight. Please join us back next week. That episode will be out on Christmas and will feature uh, the 2019 remake of Black Christmas, which we'll be talking about with our buddy Bob Ryer. See you guys then.
Progressively Horrified is created and produced by Jeremy Whitley. This episode was written by Jeremy Whitley, Ben Kahn, Emily Martin, and Ali Mullen. All opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and not intended to represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers, nor do they represent any of the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Colo 6 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. You can become an important part of the Progressively Horrified by becoming a member of our Patreon at patreon.com slash progressivelyhorrified. If you want to sponsor Progressively Horrified, please contact us via our Twitter at proghorrorpod or email us at progressivelyhorrified at gmail.com. Then it gives me a chance to not say um so many times when I talk about myself. Oh, you are in great company there. (laughs) (laughs) The only one in this group that doesn't say um constantly is Ben. And Ben just goes ahead and starts a sentence before... (laughs) They know what the rest of the sentence is. It's true. (laughs) I just start talking and hope by the time I get to the end of the sentence, my brain's figured out how to finish it.